Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Exodus 1.1 These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Essachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all other work, they ruthlessly made the work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephar, And the other, and the other Pua. When you when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife gives, comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and with the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Then, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, no, said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Good morning, everybody. All right, there's a lot going on, and I want to welcome you to the Exodus. We are going to be looking at the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus this summer, and this is going to take us on a journey from suffering in slavery, what you just heard read, all the way through to this song of salvation, this celebration and praise of God 
delivering them from the hands of the Egyptians, um, helping them get um, through the Red Sea and off to the other side. That's our summer, this, this story that is so hope-filled. Now, there's a few things you should know as we begin a, a book like this. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Um, comes right on the heels of the book of Genesis, and we will look at the first 15 chapters, the first two chapters this morning, or first one and a half chapters. The author, the traditional authorship of the book of Exodus is Moses. Doesn't mean he wrote everything himself down, but the, these books, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, are attributed to Moses as being the writer of these. And, and that really does hold up for a number of reasons. Let me just give you a couple of the reasons. We actually see numerous times in the book of Exodus that um, there are multiple occasions where God tells Moses to go and write something down. He says, write this down, write these words, right? God says this, so write it down, Moses. This happens time and time again in the book of Exodus. And so what we have here is Moses' faithfulness in recording God's words to us. And that's how we view the Bible around here, by the way, as well. All of these books on the, um, are, are uh, on the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit written down by men so that when we open up the Bible, this isn't, these aren't just stories. These are God's words to us. And so we believe that Moses recorded faithfully the words that God would have him write. Not only that, if you jump forward to the New Testament, Jesus quotes from Exodus uh, a number of times. And you know how He does it? He doesn't say in Exodus or the second book of the Pentateuch, it says this. He says, Moses said, and then states the verse from Exodus. And so I, I've, I've come to try as a disciple of Jesus to have a pattern in my life, and that pattern is if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. So for Jesus, He looks back at the Pentateuch and is, He's just like, this is what Moses said. So if I'm going to um, look back at this book, at the Exodus, it's not simply a fictitious story. It's a real story. It's not just written, you know, hundreds of years later by different people writing different types of things. This is the faithfulness. Oral tradition carried some of this, but it was faithfully recorded, and these are um, what God would have us know, and Moses was faithful to deliver that. The time frame around this was roughly going on around 1440 B.C. All of this exodus was taking place. There are a couple different dates that, that people look to. 1440 seems to be the, 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 the primary uh, date estimation of when this took place. So we're talking about a book and a story that's 3,500 years old. So a question maybe you have in your mind if you're not that familiar with church or even if you are, we're getting into an Old Testament book and you have a red letter Bible and you're like, I don't see any red letters for literally like a thousand pages. What's going on here? Like, what does this have to do with my life? Well, yes, it's 3,500 years old, this story, this exodus, but I've got to tell you, this is so timely for us as a church, sure, but um, as Christians, yes, but globally, in the time we are in, this Exodus story is as necessary for us to hear as ever. Let me tell you a few of the reasons why. The problems Israel faced are still problems we face in the world today, such as racism. So I'm going to give you a broad overview of a few subjects here, and we're going to tackle those, sort them right out, uh, you know, as we go through this summer. But we see racism in this story. Pharaoh, like other political leaders throughout history and today, used the threat of warfare as a pretext for persecuting foreigners. Blaming things on ethnic minorities is convenient to these leaders, and the reason for that is because racism is part of our sinful human nature, meaning that world leaders and national leaders, right, like throughout history have been able to oppress people by, by using this innate racism in, in people and pitting some tribes against other tribes, some ethnicities against other ethnicities, minorities against the majority. This has happened. It continues to happen. I'm not really a guy to preach on politics, but I hear there's a guy running down in the States who says, listen, if you're from the Middle East, we want to deport you back there. And if you're an illegal immigrant, we want to send you back to Mexico. And by the way, we want you to build the wall that we're going to put up on your way out. 
See, this kind of stuff, maybe that's a little too pointed, but um, wave the Canadian flag here in just thankfulness. Uh, we do not have a difficult polling issue going on in the next few months. But these kinds of scenarios continue to press our world. Let's take it a step further. We see refugees in the story of the Exodus. There are the most refugees in the world right now, the most that there have been since World War II. There are over 60 million refugees. Over 60 million people are displaced. They're either they fled their country or are trying to flee, meaning that there are camps on borders with hundreds of thousands and millions of people, of people fleeing for their lives in this world right now. Over 60 million refugees in the world. You know, places like Syria and Afghanistan and Somalia, this is all simultaneously happening, and there are more refugees than there have been since World War II at present. Issues of infanticide show up in this story. This continues to exist in our world today where, where little girls are born into homes where they want little boys, and so therefore the little baby girls are killed. In our country, in Canada, there are 300 abortions per day and nearly 100,000 each year in our nation. So issues along these lines, complex as they are, continue to be issues of our day. We see in this story, and we'll see this morning, that infanticide turns to genocide. Genocide, of course, being the deliberate killing of a large group of people or an ethnic group or in a nation. Nazi Germany is a clear example of this, and this is only a couple of generations ago. There are people in our church who lived through that. Issues in the 90s, like the Rwandan genocide. Issues at present, such as Darfur or ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and these have been dubbed what they're doing as genocide. This continues to take place. These atrocities exist in the Exodus, and they exist in our world today. Slavery is in this story. We start by seeing the suffering of a people group who are enslaved. The story shifts from there, and there's hope. But today, there are over 30 million slaves in the world. Slavery continues to exist. And by God's grace, the most hopeful, the most encouraging organization on the planet trying to free slaves is IJM, International Justice Mission, a group of Christians who believe slaves need to be freed, that there should be no one enslaved in this world. And as we see this story of redemption happen in the Exodus, we know as Christians these wrongs continue to need to be righted. In fact, we see God working those sorts of stories here, and we know those things to be the character of God, meaning God does not want racism to exist or refugees to be displaced or infanticide or genocide or slavery to happen, and yet they do. And we can blame God and we can point the finger at God. We can also recognize that our carnal sins collectively have bred this sort of hate and sin in the world, and God comes along and brings the story of the exodus of people existing in those situations and saying, I will bring you to freedom. I will take you out of that and give you hope. That is the story of the exodus, and that's also the story of the gospel. See, the exodus is a picture of gospel, so that should provide us with hope and provide a hurting world with hope. The exodus is a story of deliverance from bondage through the work of a Savior, and therefore is the story of the Christian life. And you will see as we go throughout the exodus this summer that the exodus is not ultimately about Moses either. It's ultimately about Jesus, and that is very good news for a world that is desperate for redemption. So there is there's literally so much that I could say about this first chapter and a half of an Exodus this morning, but we're going to narrow it. We're going to focus it in three ways. You'll see them on the screen. The first is growth happens in the midst of affliction. We see affliction, we see suffering, we see hardship, but we also see growth, and we're going to look at those two commingling. Growth happens in the midst of affliction. Second, God's redemption story is full 
of unlikely heroes. I'm your pastor. There's one, right? God's redemption story is full of unlikely heroes. We're going to see a number of them in the story this morning. Thirdly, God provides a Savior. He provided a Savior for the Israelites. He provides a Savior for you. So why don't I pray and we'll, we'll get right in. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to hear it, not to quickly chase application, or, um, but to believe your word foundationally. We ask, God, too, that on top of that, by your Holy Spirit, by your very presence, God, you would press down deep some rich truths of your word into our hearts where there are voids, where there is sin, where there is difficulty, where there's affliction. God, would you bring us your redemptive word this morning? Would you help us hear it? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the English translation of the Bible, in the translation I'm holding, the ESV, the book of Exodus starts this way, these are the names of the sons of Israel. But if you look at the original if you language, the Hebrew, the first word isn't these, the first word is and. When was the last time you got a book out from the library or ordered a book on Amazon or whatever, and you open up the very first page and it says, and then they walked into the story. You're like, what? That's a weird start to a story. And? And what? But this is very intentional. Like I said, Moses penned the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and Exodus begins with and. Why? And always comes after something. So he's, he's just beckoning us, look back, look back. And what do we look back at? Well, we look back at the fact that God's chosen people, this people this, who from Abraham, God made a promise, a covenant to love them and to make them a nation, make them a people, to bless other people and to bless other nations. He's made this promise to them, and he'll give them a land. But now we open up Exodus, and they're in Egypt. So what's going on? Well, he's starting by saying, and these are the generations. These are the sons of Israel, of Jacob. And He's wanting us to remember the story of Joseph when famine came, when his brothers sold him into slavery, and off he went into Egypt, and he rose Joseph up to be mighty and the second in command in this nation. And Joseph was able to save this people by helping the Egyptians make storehouses of food so that when a famine came, they were spared. And God was gracious to Egypt, and He was also gracious to His own people in drawing them to Egypt out of necessity for food, and they found their brother Joseph there. God providentially was orchestrating all of this. And so this family, numbering 70, it tells us in the opening verses of Exodus, wind up in Egypt. That's how they land there. And so now he's picking it up, and we see what's happened since. Verse 7 says, but the people of Israel, after Joseph died and his brothers died, and that generation, the, the next generations were coming, and the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So that's the scenario we find ourselves in all these years later in the book of Exodus. But then verse 8 happens where a pharaoh comes into power. Just as the next generations after these brothers have died, a new pharaoh comes into power, and it says he, that he did not know Joseph. Now, it's not simply that this pharaoh was a slacker and didn't go to history lessons on his way to becoming pharaoh. What it means is that he had no preference for Joseph and his people. It wasn't his guy. And so he's coming into power and has no regard for Joseph and all that he did for the nation, and in essence has no regard for that people group, the Israelites. And so they are afflicted with many burdens. He has an idea. He said to his people, verse 9, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. So he doesn't want them to multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our, our, jo join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So they don't want them to multiply, and they don't want them to escape from the land, though, either. So therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. 
and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. These people became oppressed. They were forced to heavy labor. The men were forced to build these store cities, and I'm sure that Pharaoh's thinking, I'm going to get them away from their wives, working really, really hard. Some of them them are going to die doing this. Some of them are going to be away from their wives doing this. They're not going to sleep with their wives. They're not going to make more kids. I don't want them multiplying, but I don't want them leaving, so we're going to put them under oppression. We're going to make them work, and we're going to make them build our cities and even things like their great pyramids. And so we see this happening, and you've got to believe that this people who knew that in their ancestry a man named Abraham was given this incredible promise from God, that in this instance when they're enslaved in Egypt, the question that they must have is, where are you, God? What, what happens to the promises you made? The Israelites must have been doubting the faithfulness of God. As year after year, they're enslaved by brutal taskmasters and treated harshly. Why is God letting this happen to us? You ever ask that question? There are a lot of reasons. So I was doing my study for this. I, I came across at least four, and there's more, just compelling reasons why God would allow such hardship and affliction. But I'm just going to give you one, one really simple one, because the other ones will get unpacked more as we go through the story of the Exodus. But here's one. In all likelihood, if they had been left to themselves, they would have assimilated into Egyptian culture and lost their identity as God's chosen people. And God was resolved to set them apart from that way and to make them a people for His glory, this particular people, and to make them a nation that would bless other nations. God had that plan for them. And so if they were to just live well, that would get really hard. Dan McCartney put it this way, and why does it have to hurt? He said, God saw the suffering of His people and then delivered them. But why did He allow suffering to happen in the first place? Could He not rather have simply prevented it? He answers the question with another question. If He had done so, would the Israelites have ever even desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough to get them to leave even when they were suffering. In fact, the story will go on and they will cross the Red Sea miraculously, be on the other side, but now in the wilderness where they're like, how are we going to get food? We didn't think ahead. We didn't wear our camel packs. Like, we don't have picnic baskets. Like, what, how are we going to exist now that we've made it here into the wilderness? We should just go back to Egypt, they began to say. So they were enslaved and even God was in the midst of God freeing them. They're looking back and you're like, it's probably better in Egypt. Had there not been any suffering or affliction, can you imagine? They wouldn't have ever wanted to go in the first place. In fact, Joseph was so blessed by Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave him the most prime land in all of Egypt along the Nile Delta. Like, the crops just grew the best there. It was like the Fraser Valley. Right? I don't know how to garden, you know, but, but, you know, in our house, like, we'll plant a few seeds and things will just sprout up. Like, you can't get it wrong in the Fraser Valley, right? And even when you, like, forget to water, God's just like, I'll pour the rain. Like, you know, I'll make it happen, imbecile, right? Like, it's just, like, you just, like, like, it just is an amazing place we live. It's the same with Egypt. They got the Nile Delta, this place that just um, was so agriculturally rich. And so, it's incredible Um, that God actually brought suffering in order to accomplish His amazing purposes in their lives. They wouldn't have wanted it other way. See, it took suffering and bondage to make God's people cry out for salvation. And suffering helps us look for our Savior. It helps us long for heaven. Have you found that to be true in your life? When the hardship comes, you, you look more, you press more, for your Savior, you want Him real close because what you're going through is so hard. Have you found that to be the case? Here's what I, I don't find a lot. I don't find a lot of people, you know, longing for heaven. In the church, out of the church, I don't find people longing for heaven. The only encounters I have where people long for heaven is when I'm by someone's deathbed who's a Christian and says, I just want to go home to be with Jesus because I'm ready. 
But what's made them ready? They're suffering. So 9-11 happened, and planes went in really into the, the West, flew into life as we know it in the West. And you know what happened the following Sunday? Every church in New York and across the country and bleeding into the whole West, churches were filled because their, their world of comfort and peace had been shattered. What's going to happen? What's this life for? How do we deal with suffering? Well, how do I deal with this fear I have? And as they began to wrestle with genuine difficulty, you know where they showed up? To church. But look, when we live along the Nile Delta or in the beauty of the Fraser Valley and life is good, and God has been gracious in allowing us not to suffer greatly, there's not a lot of us looking for a Savior and longing for heaven. God in His grace and in His master plan afflicted a people, allowed it to happen so that they would be willing to go and be blessed in such a way. So all of that affliction is happening. Now, on top of that, let's just layer something else that's going on. We see that they're growing. So we see they have all this growth and they're multiplying and they're increasing and they're exceedingly strong. We see that in verse 7. So Pharaoh comes along and wants to stop them from multiplying. And so he inflicts them with heavy burdens. But look what happens in the midst of all of the slavery and heavy burdens. Verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. This is an amazing thing. This really is a truth like the the truth that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28, where he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This idea that no matter what comes your way, God's working all for good in your growth. This is a promise of God to His people. doesn't mean things will all go well, but that He will do what is good and what will help you and will bring growth. So even in the midst of affliction, growth and multiplication is happening here. This pattern of growth through suffering has been repeated repeated numerous times in church history. So there's a story I told a few weeks ago about this man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who was stoned to death and he was proclaiming the gospel as as he was. And he was killed. And right after that, it flows into Acts chapter 8 where it says that great persecution broke out in all of Jerusalem. So the Christians fled and they spread into, you know, the, the whole hillside, into other places, into all of Samaria, into Judea. These Christians spread, but not in a fear that kept them from preaching the gospel. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So there's, so we actually have Stephen to thank and the persecuted church in Jerusalem to thank that the gospel went to the nations. See, Stephen The persecution of Stephen laid the foundation for worldwide mission. He was martyred, and people were persecuted in Jerusalem, and so they spread. The gospel went to places it had not yet ever been. Why? Why did it go? Why did the church just not stay a megachurch in Jerusalem? You know why? Because the world needed to know. How did God make that happen? He allowed persecution to happen to the church, and they spread to Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. But as they went, they shared the gospel and people were saved. This isn't just an ancient story. This is a modern story. Um, An American delegation from uh, a ministry in the States went to China in the 1970s and they wrote a report about their findings. Here's the summary. This American delegation visiting China in the 1970s reported there is not a single Christian left in China. That report came out in the 1970s. Can you believe it? Sure, the underground church was, was, was happening to a degree, but from what they could observe, there was not a single Christian in China in the 70s. Today, there's over 60 million. There's two Canada's worth of Christians in China. And you know what's happened between the 70s and now? Nothing but affliction for Christians. I've, I've been to underground churches in China, right, where the government officials come and they just pull people away and put them in prison. Why? Because they met in a church. It's a hostile place to be a genuine follower of Jesus. But you know what's happened in the midst of affliction in China? Over 60 million people have become Christians in the span of 40 years. Praise God. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, put it this way, to trust God in the light is nothing. 
but trust him in the dark. That's faith. Trusting God in the light, Spurgeon said, that's nothing. But if you will trust him when the dark season comes, and for every one of us it will if it has not already, trust him in the dark, that's faith. So you and I, just like the Israelites, are sojourners in a foreign land longing to get home, and God will lead us to the promised land. But one of the things that the Exodus teaches us is that God never promises that the road to the promised land will be easy, right? Sometimes we're fooled by this. We think, I became a Christian. I tithe. I go to church. Like, why are things not going well for me? There's just sort of this narrative that gets in some Christian circles and in some of our minds. We think, I'm a Christian. Things should go well. I tell people who get baptized, we're praying for you that you would be protected because you're going to probably have a rough couple of weeks. Tell guys coming into leadership in the church, just we're praying for you that you would be protected because it's going to get bad. <laughs> Should I be doing this? Right? Like, they're like, that's, it. that's my word, right? It is awesome. Those things happen. And by God's grace, people get baptized and they take these steps of faith, risks and all. But the Christian life is never promised to be easy. One thing I like to tell people when they think that and when I hear that kind of in their lives, I'm a Christian. Why is things not going well for me? I'm like, you follow a guy who tells you to be his disciple, to live like him. And you know how it ended for him? He died on a cross. It didn't end for him that way. But like, he died a horrific death. And you're to follow in his footsteps. Why do you think it'll be all roses? And so that's going on, and we're, we're called to follow after him. He never says the road will be easy, but he will lead every believer, every follower of Jesus to the promised land. In our case, this new heaven and new earth where all the crooked things in the world, all the broken things in the world, everything that's awful, everything that's sinful, everything that's evil in the world will be undone, and God will renew heaven and earth. And that's our promised land, and we will live there forever. That's promised to us. Never says the road to get there will be easy. So let's look at the midst of difficulty where suffering is happening, affliction is taking place, and we come across a situation that is not good. In verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. Now, I saw some pregnant women here this morning. There's babies here all the time at Central, and I've got a baby recommendation for you. It's biblical, right? That's cool, um, right? It's, it's pretty unique, and the name is Pua. It also rhymes with something babies do a lot. I don't know. I'm throwing it out there. Just, I haven't heard it around. Option. I'm just, I'm giving you options. But of these Hebrew midwives named Shifra and the other Pua, um, the Pharaoh says to him, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool giving birth, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives, who knows, a few months later, a few years later, but he's starting to see little Hebrew boys running around. Why have you done this and let the male children live, he says. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I'm not sure if this is true. I'm not sure if this is a half-truth. I'm not sure if this is a flat-out lie. But it's probably like what happened in the Garnier household like a few weeks ago where baby number four was coming and grandma was delivering because they weren't getting to the hospital, right? Some of you know that story. Some of you don't. It's an amazing story. And so what they're saying is, we can't get there on time. That's why they live, because he's telling them, quietly kill every male child that's born. They're like, well, we can't even get there for the birth. These Hebrew women, just... <laughs> they're not like Egyptian women. And there's so many things I want to say, maybe make a Mennonite joke, I don't know, but I'm not going to. It wouldn't really apply, but anyways. <laughs> Verse 20, so God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. God's redemption story is full of unlikely heroes. These two Hebrew midwives are instructed to kill these baby boys, infanticide. Imagine the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, telling you what you're supposed to do in your job. 
this is what you're going to do, says the most powerful man at the time in the world to these foreign women. You have to at least think in, in, that you'd start, well, start to think, what can we do? What can we possibly do? What choice do we have, they might begin to say. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we should kill some and spare others, and it's like kind of the lesser of two evils, and some will live, and if it's us who do it, maybe, right, we can spare some, and, or maybe they would have thought, you know what, it's us or them, and we're told to do this. What choice do we have? You can imagine the pressure that they must have felt But what happens in this story is very much 1 Corinthians 1, where it says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is yet another example of that, as he uses these nobodies in that context and uses them mightily. And God wants us to see that. One of the reasons I know that God wants us to see that here, that these women are incredible, is because Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, isn't named. So when scholars and historians look back and they say, okay, which, okay, here's the years, and they're looking back, who might have been the Pharaoh? Maybe it was this guy, maybe it was this guy, maybe it was this guy. They're listing these names, but they're not really sure who the Pharaoh is, who the most powerful guy in the world at that time was, because he's not named in the Bible. But you know who are named? You know who the heroes are? Shifra and Pua are the heroes. And their names are written in the Bible for us to know, for us to see that these godly women were faithful. And, and so the, uh, Moses um, writes this, and so when, when the gospel writer Matthew writes his gospel, he wants us to see this story. There's allusions here, allusions here to the um, uh, Gentile wise men who came to honor Jesus, and they go by Herod. Um, who hears that there's a king of the Jews who's born, and he gets jealous, right, and nervous, and so he calls for all, what, Hebrew boys to be killed in Bethlehem. And the wise men catch wind of this, and so they take another way around, and they don't go, and they don't report it. God uses the most unlikely of heroes for his redemptive purposes, like two Hebrew, Hebrew midwives, and however many Gentile wise men there were, But things get worse. In verse 22, because this plan of infanticide isn't working, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, he commands his people, but you shall let every daughter live. He turns from infanticide to genocide, vigilante justice, turn on your neighbor. If you see a little Hebrew boy, you kill that Hebrew boy and you throw them in the Nile River. And then three more incredible women step onto the scene. A Levite woman gives birth to a little baby boy, and she notices that he is a fine child. Now, at first glance, this is what every mother thinks when she looks at her baby, who just, you know, not biased at all, thinks, this is the most beautiful child that I've ever seen in my life. But there's actually allusions here to the creation account where God creates and says that it's good, and God creates and says that it's good, and He's working through all of this, and so there's this sense that Moses is born, and she sees that it's good, special, Savior, and so she nurses him for three months, but I guess, right, gets to the point where she can't hide him anymore. Neighbors are turning on neighbors. Genocide is taking place. People are looking for little Hebrew boys, and they're killing them and throwing them into the river. I can't imagine this, nor could any mother imagine this when this is the scenario happening around, and they have a little baby boy. And so after three months of nursing this child, I guess, I don't know, the child screams or like loud enough or whatever, like this is getting to a stage where he's going to be found out. And so with agony, this mother, for some reason, thinks there's a hope at least here in putting him in a basket and placing him in the Nile River and sending that child down the river. And so this mother, in some form of faith, is just trusting that this special child will be spared. And all the while, Moses' older sister comes along and starts to walk down the Nile River by the basket. Where's my brother going? What's going to happen here? She's watching it go, this big sister, watching her brother, knowing what's at stake, and just walking the shore. And the sister finally sees the basket come, 
where Pharaoh's daughter is going to bathe. And I don't know if Pharaoh's daughter heard the cries of an infant or the baby in the basket. I like to picture just bumped into her, right? And she just turns and opens and sees this beautiful child, and she has compassion. Pharaoh is calling for all these boys to be killed. Pharaoh's daughter sees a Hebrew baby boy and says, Aw, forget dad, and takes the baby up. Meanwhile, sister comes along and says, do you want me to find a a Hebrew nurse who could nurse this baby for you? Yes, do that. Go. Well, who do you think Moses' sister goes to? Moses' sister goes to Moses' mom and her own mom and says, come. So Moses' mom goes back and is given her own child back from Pharaoh's daughter who says, nurse this boy. I'll pay you for it. Raise this child. Do you see the redemption that God can bring in this river of death? God is weaving this hopeful rescue. It's incredible. And these women are faithful to God. God will use insane ways to achieve His purposes to redeem and to free. And He continues to use weak ordinary people. But there are two attributes of these women in this story, specifically the midwives, that we have to draw out and see. He doesn't just use weak things. He uses weak things who give their lives to Jesus. Look, Pharaoh tells them what to do, but when, um, but it says the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These women had two attributes about them that we must understand. Weak as they were, they feared God and they were faithful to God. This idea of fearing God is a healthy fear of God, recognizing that there's someone more important than my boss. There's someone more important than my prime minister. There's someone who I'm accountable to above all things, and that's the creator of all things, who made all things, who sent a savior to rescue us. He is God, and he is holy, and therefore he is to be feared in this reverent way more than anybody, meaning his ways are the ones that we are to follow in faithfulness. These women feared God, and they remained faithful, and they would not waver no matter the cost. Listen, for you and for me, sooner or later, we will all be forced to take a stand, to decide whether we fear God or whether we fear other people. We will all be tempted to lie, cheat, and to steal. And we are all called in the midst of where God has placed us to be faithful where he's placed us. Has he given you a marriage? Has he given you a spouse? Your call is faithfulness. Your call isn't simply, right, have the most beautiful spouse, right? Have the most argument-free marriage. Your call is to be faithful in the marriage that you are in. Has God given you the blessing of children? God has called you to be faithful as a mother. God has called you to be faithful as a father. Has He given you a place to have, have work difficult as it may be, He has called you to be faithful, to be the hardest worker, to give glory to God in your work, to honor your boss. And the only times that we don't honor boss and don't honor government is when they go against God, and then we fear God over them. But we are to live as these faithful people today. And this is happening less and less in society, I've got to tell you. There's this rise of this category. They're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not like a group of Catholic nuns that are rising. Uh, That would be awesome, though. It sounds like a good movie plot. But the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, where what's going on is there are people who don't feel the temptation to check the box of religious affiliation or that they're Christian like they did in decades past. See, you could go to a job interview decades ago, and if you said you were a Christian and went to a particular church, the boss would think, oh, what an integrous individual this might be. Probably very moral, probably very hard worker. That's a good thing. Now, like for universities, for example, it's been proven in studies that it's actually very, very, very very hard. There's a clear prejudice that no universities um, that are secular at least want to hire an evangelical Christian. You're an evangelical Christian? Well, clearly you're a moron, so let's move on, right? Like, so now there's a bias against it that says you're obviously not intelligent, whereas before it's like, that's a good thing for you. You want to be… So that doesn't exist in our culture so much anymore. It's changing. Chilliwack may be the last place in the world it changes, but it's changing nonetheless. It's happening. And so people don't feel when they're doing a census poll like they need to check the box like they used to. And so the rise of the no religious affiliation is rising. It's not a bad thing. I just want you to hear that. It's not a bad thing. 
Because there are still people checking the box. And you know who the people who are, who are checking the box? They're people who are saying, yeah, my faith costs me. I don't know what this means for me, right? This may provide suffering. If my boss is, is going to come up in an interview, I'm okay with that. It is what it is. I'm going to be faithful to God, and I'm going to fear God above all things. And so there's this desire to do that. And of course, we are as Christians called um, to live faithfully and make disciples. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus here at Central, leading others to follow Him. And so this gets really practical in our faithfulness and our fear of God. A Canadian study came out in 2014 of millennials, of, of kind of young adult Canadians, which had some surprising results. Here's one of them. 98% of young unchurched Canadians would listen if someone offered to tell them about their Christian faith. When it comes to young adults in Canada, 98% of them would listen if you wanted to tell them their faith, your faith story. That's amazing. Are you faithful to God? Do you fear God and say, my greatest purpose on the planet is to be a disciple of Jesus and I'm to make disciples of Jesus? So there's, when there's fear, you're recognizing, you know what? There is actually opportunity to share my faith. 98% of young unchurched Canadians would listen if you tell your faith story to them. 51% of young Canadians would be willing to study the Bible if invited by a friend. This kind of makes me laugh a little bit because Emily and I, have, we started a life group in our neighborhood and we asked some neighbors across the street if they wanted to come and join us. And they're like, sure, that sounds great, we'll come. We asked some other neighbors, they're like, ah, no, we'll pass, right? So uh, this isn't just a poll of my neighborhood, this is a real poll of many more people, but <laughs> evidently the facts are right. 51% of young Canadians would be willing to study the Bible if invited by a friend. So ask two people to come to your life group this week. One of them's going to come. It's awesome. 53% would attend church if it presented truth in an understandable and relevant way. Well, I've read some verses from the Bible, and I'm showing you statistics. I hope that's relevant and understandable. But that's a beautiful thing. Over half of young Canadians who don't have church affiliation, they'd come if you'd invite them and if they came to a place where they could understand what was going on. It's a great challenge to me and to us as a church that we want to be, uh, help people with great depths in their faith while also making it accessible to anyone who walks in the room. That's our hope. That's our prayer. 47% of young unchurched in Canada would be more likely to attend if people at church cared about them as a person. This is helpful for us to hear as well. Nearly half, if they did, you know, maybe when tragedy happens or where they're soul searching and they actually walk through the doors of a church, if they felt like... Man, people are genuinely kind here. People are here in this church are not as super weird as I thought people in churches were, right? They're nice. They're inviting me for lunch. Who does that? This is amazing, right? Like, that this would really have impact on people. So my prayer for us is that we would have courage where God's placed us in life and to share the gospel, our primary calling in our lives, that we would have courage I pray that God would give us by His Holy Spirit the promise of giving us words when we're short on words as we begin to share faith with people. It's an invigorating time, invigorating time when God gives us words as we step out in faith to love people. I pray also that we would have genuine love for our neighbors. See, God used Hebrew midwives and Gentile wise men so that people could be saved. And He's still writing that story with unlikely heroes today like you and me. Lastly and quickly, God provides a Savior. We see at the beginning of chapter 2 that a Savior is born. Because the only way to move from bondage to liberation is for God to intervene, and that's what was necessary. And so a Savior was born, and it says in the text that his mother placed, her, placed him in a basket. That word is only used in one other story in the Bible, it's a Hebrew word, tabah, and it's used 26 times between Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8. You know what happens there? The story of Noah, where Noah is instructed by God to build a tabah, to build an ark, to build a basket that would house his family and a bunch of crazy animals, and salvation would come through the waters of death. And here Moses is placed in a tabah a saving one who will be spared in order to rescue a fallen people. Jesus himself 
triumphed over death and, and resurrection and was the greater exodus. And Jesus passed through the waters of death in order to save us. In Hebrews chapter 3, there's reference to Moses and he's called a good servant. In Hebrews chapter 3, there's reference to Jesus and he's called the Son. In John chapter 1, Moses is thanked for bringing the law to people, but Jesus is praised for bringing grace and truth to people in every way. Jesus is the greater Savior. God used Moses to save a people, and he's, he's used Jesus to save all who would call on his name. See, like Moses, Jesus was born at a time when Israel was controlled by a foreign power. For Moses, it was the Egyptians. For Jesus, it was the Romans. And like Moses, Jesus was born when a powerful leader called for all Israelite male children to be killed. And like Moses, Jesus was preserved in order to save a people. Israel, in the story that we will study this summer, was saved from brutal taskmasters and slavery in Egypt in order to be a people set apart for God's glory and to bless the nations. Like Israel, we are saved from slavery to sin and Satan. Satan, that brutal taskmaster. And we are saved to worship and to witness about Jesus Christ. Let me close our time in prayer. Jesus, thank you for being our salvation. Thank you for bringing rescue, not just to some sense we might have that we need saving. We, we, we need very real saving from our bondage to sin. We need hope that comes from you. We need salvation. We need redemption. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to save. God, thank you for showing us in the Exodus that you care about racism and want it to be abolished. You care about infanticide and genocide and want it to be halted. You care about slavery and want slaves to be set free physically and spiritually. So God, I pray you would make us the kind of church locally and church universally that follow your heart for justice where there is injustice. Bring hope to the hopeless, I pray. Here today among us and to a hurting world beyond us, I pray this all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.